All right, here's a good one that I think all parents can relate to. We need help with video games. We're very strict and have rules with, with, them, with the time allowed, but our 15-year-old son gets so angry with us constantly. It seems the only way high school boys are connecting these days is online gaming. If we take it away or allow a limited time, he feels left out and doesn't get to connect with the kids at school and even in the youth group. And <laughs> Fortnite. <clears throat> I don't know if uh, you know if, if if you have this going in your home, but I'm guessing you might not. But it it does touch a lot of, of homes, and it is how kids uh, hang out these days. So what do you do as a parent? Yes, this this subject is actually near and dear to my heart because my ten year old son loves loves video games, and it's an ongoing battle in our house. So. I, whoever out there asks this question, I'm right there with you. I understand completely. Um, I, I think it's, it's important to have the time limits. And even if your kid is so upset with you about it, to hold the time limits because ultimately it does take so much time away from everything in their lives. So I think there are two different issues that are going on here. One is the limitation, what do you do on that? The other is the type of video game. You know, you mentioned Fortnite, and people will come out differently on this. In fact, I literally just today read on folks on the family, they have plugged in media. Are you guys familiar with that? They review different games. It's very helpful, so I'd recommend that when you're checking out games. And even on that review, they kind of said, you know, some people are gonna have a problem with this, some don't because it's not, uh, you know, as realistic. Personally, I don't allow my son to play it just because I'm not okay with the whole first-person shooter thing no matter how cartoony it is, but that's just a personal conviction. I also work with my son a lot in terms of the selection of video games and books and media. And I, I, he's gotten to a point now where I tell him to research his own books and he has to come back to me and tell me. So he goes on to Common Sense Media is another great website if you're not familiar with it, and to read what people say, and he comes back and he tells me whether or not he thinks this is something that, as a Christian, that he should be consuming. So having your kids do that kind of research can be really helpful because it helps them learn to have discernment from an early age. And, and that's been really helpful. And in fact, the last book he researched, he and I kind of disagreed on the conclusion. There was nothing wildly inappropriate about it or anything like that. I thought it would be a little bit scary. He really wanted to read it and thought it would be okay. So because it wasn't too much of a risk, I let him go with it. And he actually ended up loving the book and it was a great experience of me being able to say, look, we're not always going to agree. I w unless I have to do a hard no on something, which I reserve the right to do, I want you to learn how to make these godly decisions. So that's kind of how I approach it in terms of the content. And he has felt left out at times. And my, and they go to, my kids go to a private Christian school, and I think every other kid plays Fortnite except mine. You know what? It's a great opportunity to explain to your kids that sometimes you're going to live different than other people, and not just non-believers, but other Christians. That's okay. That's okay. As parents, we're going to make those best decisions. And the time limit thing, it, it is really difficult. Um, there, there's no 100% answer for everyone on how long that you do video games for. I don't know if you have. Well, I would just say that as kids, as my kids got older, I just, I tried to reinforce that they had gotten the foundation and now their faith had to be their own. And I had an old boss that used to say every decision I made with my time, I was in sales, was a business decision. Uh, if I wanted to leave early that afternoon, I made a business decision and it would cost me money because I was getting commissions. And so, you know, if you, if you flip that around to everyday life, every decision that we make with our time, and I'm not talking about being legalistic, 
Uh, I think we should have free time. I think we should have fun. I think we should enjoy movies and, and all that stuff. But it's got to be within reason. So you could put this in quotes. It's a business decision or a spiritual deci decision how you spend your time. And the older your kids get, you have to, you have to work with them on how to walk out wisdom. And one of the ways that you walk out wisdom is how you spend your time. And so um, I, I, I see that as a big stewardship issue. I put it under a big category of stewardship. And I think those are conversations that Fortnite or whatever the game may be, um, you have to have those with your kid. And maybe they have to struggle a little bit with kind of coming to some realizations about the time that they're investing in some of this stuff as well. Yeah. So there, there's, there's some balance there. My son has left the room, so if we can just get all the parents to agree to not let their kids <laughs> he play left Fortnite he at all, the then they'll all have to get together and talk like we used to back in the day. I'm just saying. Uh, okay, uh, how do we encourage or teach and live out the gospel to our children, but not be scared of becoming helicopter parents by being overprotective about them? That's a really good question. I, and this ties into what I said a little bit before, I try to involve my kids in the thought process of my decision making about everything. And so I want them to understand. My kids, for example, I don't allow to use YouTube. I think they're the only kids at school who don't use YouTube. And this is, they, you know, they complain about it. I tell them if they need to watch something for school assignments, then they can come and use my computer to do it, but they're not gonna have free reign with YouTube on their own computer. And I share news stories with them where things have come up on YouTube that have been really giant problems or where there have been uh, child predators that have come out through, there, there was a story this week about um, the one of the Bible apps that are really popular out there. I don't know if anyone saw that story that there was a predator reaching out and friending all the different girls in a Bible study group because they the girls would assume, oh, well, he's already friends with the other ones and so he must be okay and so this was a huge news story whenever I see something like that I share it with my kids because it's a way of them seeing this isn't just mom being freaked out about everything and being scared of all the world this is real stuff and it happens all the time and so I regularly bring to them these things and involve them in my decision-making process. And sometimes I let them, like I said, sometimes I defer to them on it and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think that you should do in this situation? Given what I've shared with you, what do you think the right thing is to do? We've had great conversations because of this, because they feel like you're actually taking the time to process with them. So I think that's a, an important thing to do. I might be a little bit atypical as a pastor uh, with three boys and now in their 20s, but my, all my boys went to public school. Um, but, but what we did do is we laid a foundation. My wife and I spent a lot of time just trying to be authentic Christian parents, but we realized that we also needed to help them navigate life. And so involvement and foundation are extremely huge and I think we did most of our preaching through our lives because they were also preachers kids and so when you have preachers kids there's that possibility that they can rebel and all of that and so we tried to find a tension with uh, laying the foundation doing devotions modeling the Christian faith being very involved but not being overly protective and that, that is a tough balance, and, and you got to know the personality of your child as well. Um, but I would just say that, you know, there is a balance there, and, and I think it's possible to go too far one way or the other. So I, I think we can sometimes do some disfavors by too much shielding. So anyway. Okay. 
I know you think you're better than the rest of us, Pastor Michael. Um, Nathan, can you do something scandalous uh, just to knock him down a peg? Um, I, know, I know when he was growing up, he was a bit of a rebel because he liked the angels instead of the doctors. Oh, dang. We had to pray extra hard for him. He said the angels were God's team. The Dodgers were. It, it, it sounds legit. I don't know. Uh, Natasha, how do we keep our kids not just... Uh, or how do, wait, how, do, how do we help our kids not just be theological filled with head knowledge, but passionate followers of Christ? Well, I actually think that, that these are not separate things, the head and the heart, that they're very connected. And when we have filled our minds with the truth of Jesus, that that does inform our hearts. So when we are so convicted intellectually that, yes, this is really true, that Jesus died for me, he is who he said he was, he is the savior of my life, he is the king of kings. When we are so deeply convicted of these things, it does translate to passion. So it's not just something that gets stuck up here. We have some head stuff, we have some heart stuff. These things are very connected. And to be fair, you mentioned personalities. I think this is a huge, huge thing that, that translates into so many areas of parenting. But our kids' personalities do drive a lot of how we relate to them in these ways. And there are some kids who start up here more, and there are other kids who start here more. But wherever they start, it's that connection and that conviction that comes together in terms of the, the passion. But I would also say, like you said, living it out. It's not just let's have these conversations, but what do we do with them? Okay, now we're, we're really convicted of the truth of Christianity. Well, let's go, let's go serve. Let's actually live our lives knowing that this is true, and let's, let's share this with others. So that firsthand yeah. action says so much. That and, and I think a couple good examples is if, if your kid watches you share your faith with somebody. If your kid uh, watches you show integrity when you got the wrong change back at a store. And they, they really watch you say, no, my faith is going to inform how I respond to this situation. My faith is going to help me respond to this other obnoxious coach on the other side of the field who's <laughs> screaming obscenities at me. And, and this, this is, these are the little imprints that are big moments in life that I think we, we sometimes underestimate it. It's like we want to get them into a class or get them into the right situation, but they pick up a lot just by how we live our lives. And I know that can be convicting and we fail. And, and I think at times when we fail, we have to confess our failure and say, you know what, I mishandled that, I, I blew that, and, and be okay to teach them grace through that aspect as well. So it's, it's a holistic thing and I know um, there's many of you who are sitting here probably tonight and, and you've got your share of hurts and wounds and regrets and there's no, nothing perfect because each one of us has our own free will and our faith, as you're talking about, Mike, has to be our own. And, and I think when they have a sense of mission and they have a sense that, hey, God has a call on my life to do something special that he's designed me for, that, that's where the ownership comes in. It's not just something that I, I do on a Sunday. It's something that, you know, this is what my life is about. One other quick thing on that that's become kind of a passion for me lately. I just got back from Israel. I was there for 10 days. And seeing just so, being so close to these, these countries that are having so much trouble, we stood across from the Syrian border, literally looking over into Syria. 
And it just, it was, became so real in a way that some of these things just had never been real to me before. And sharing that with our kids, especially growing up here in, you know, Southern California, they don't, that doesn't seem so real. It's like a very safe kind of faith. And so I've always, but especially now, I've always been trying to share stories with my kids about things that are going on, the, the suffering of Christians in other parts of the world. These are things that when they realize, wow, this really is something worth dying for and that people are actually dying for, I have seen that create a passion for my kids and just understanding this is, this is huge. This is everything. All right. Now, this one might be different. The answer might be different based on how old the child is, but... Um, how do you deal with a how do you deal with a child who's completely shut out God? Who's completely shut out God? Yes. Well, I, I think it depends on if you have if they're talking. <laughs> because sometimes if you mean completely shut out that they're not actually talking to you, then that can be a different kind of challenge. That's that's a relational issue that has to be solved. And a lot of times when I talk to parents who have this problem, they say that that's, that's the most of the issue. They can't have the conversation. In that case, that's more of a counseling issue. It's reopening the relationship there, or a pastoral issue of reopening the relationship between the parents and kids to have those questions. But sometimes, if the child is willing to talk, it's important to ask them questions, because a lot of times we're ready to give our answers. Maybe you took your one step and you listened to some podcasts, and you're ready with all kinds of answers to give your kids about the evidence for the existence of God and the fine-tuning of the universe, and your kid's like, I'm not going to hear this. But asking the questions, like, well, can you tell me exactly what you do believe now? So, you know, so you believe that there is no God? Okay. And how have you come to that conclusion? Those are hugely important questions to ask, to, to get them to answer those kinds of questions if you do have that kind of relationship still. It is hard not knowing the age of the kids that we're talking about here. But I think in that case, that's the most important first thing that you can do is ask lots of questions so that they know you want to hear their perspective. You want to hear from them. You want to understand how they're developing these conclusions. And the reason for that is that you want them to feel safe talking to you so that you can continue to have these conversations. But also, you can't begin to have conversations with answers unless you really understand where the problems lie. You might be giving an answer to a question they don't have. Some people say, oh, I don't believe in, in God, and you could talk about the fine-tuning universe, but what they're really saying is there's too much suffering in the world. That's a different question. So really ask your kids questions. Make sure you're opening up those lines of communication. Let them know it's okay if they're struggling. Don't come down on them. Don't, it, and I know some people might disagree with this, but I, I saw this recently, just this week, that a mom was struggling with her teenage son, and so he doesn't believe in God anymore. She's just posting post-its with Bible verses all over his mirror every morning. In my, in my opinion, that's shutting down the relationship because he's so annoyed by it that he just gets mad at her. And she said, well, I'm just going to keep putting God's word in front of him. So, so you have to kind of, you have to respect where they are and ask questions so you can have those conversations. Yeah, just keep secretly praying for them. Because yeah. <laughs> they can't do anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> how can a parent who has adult children, I'm guessing maybe out of the house at this point, but how can they be influential to their grandkids or kids in the community? That's a great question because grandparents are so, so important. And actually, I just finished reading this book to endorse it about this very topic about grandparenting. And some of these books are already out, so look up the name Josh Mulvihill. It's M-U-L-V-I-H-I-L-L. -L. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he's written a series, and I think he's on number six, of seven books uh, that, he's, that he's working through on grandparenting. Um, but there, there are so many opportunities. Another post that I just saw on Facebook this week was that a grandma 
was uh, asking for advice. Her, her adult child is a Christian, but didn't, his wife's a non-believer, and so they are not raising their kids with any kind of faith in their home. So she was thinking of secretly taking the child one weekend to get baptized. <laughs> this, this, is, this is not a good idea on many levels, and so we, fortunately we had lots of people in this Facebook group who were telling her that. But the point of the saying that is that you can't, you can't expect to have a good relationship with your grandchildren or your ch children if you're going and sneaking around and doing these kinds of things. You have to hope that you're going to continue to have relationship. Again, it comes back to this relationship so that you can be that good spiritual influence in the life of your grandchild. And you might be the most godly influence in their life. So you don't want to shut it down by doing things that are deceitful, for example. Doesn't the movie Nacho Libre prove that you can sneak up and baptize somebody? <laughs> I haven't seen it. Isn't that I great evidence? That. For, I, I'm sorry, that was just wrong. You must be baptized. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, that's honestly the first time I've heard a Nacho a Libre <laughs> reference in it, from the from the stage here. Um, yeah, we're going baptizing. Okay, here, uh, this one's kind of tough, actually. Um, mom's a Christian, dad's an atheist. How do you provide evidence without disagreeing with the other parent? Children don't want to disappoint or disagree with their dad. This. I think every time I've ever done a Q&A, this question comes up, and I have to tell you, it's my least favorite question to get because it's so hard to answer. I will say that if that is you, you are not alone. As we have seen kids walking away from faith, like we talked about the statistics, that's happening to spouses everywhere. And I probably get an email every week from a wife or a husband who said that their spouse has fallen away. This is a really hard thing to deal with. And some of the couples that I hear from, the person who's lost faith is just refusing any kind of spiritual conversation in the home. In other cases, they're open to it, and it just the answer to this question would completely depend on that individual situation. I think the ideal situation is to get to a point where the two parents can agree that respectfully talking about each of their beliefs with their child is an okay thing. Because if you try to just shut out the conversation completely, that basically leaves your kids being raised in an atheistic home. It, it's the default position that they're not hearing anything about God. So that's actually not a fair conclusion. So I would say the most important thing that you can do with your spouse is to agree, look, this is important to both of us, assuming that's the case in the situation. Can we agree that we can have these reasonable conversations about why objectively we believe what we do without disparaging the other person and knowing that we're doing it for our kids because we love their, our kids. And you know, from a pastoral perspective, run, running into this multiple times, usually there's something morally going on, or there's some source of anger, or there's something going on that's, again, back to not, not necessarily intellectual um, challenges to the faith. And so that's where there's maybe some need for some pastoral assistance. But given what you said, um, what I would say is I would continue to pray for that person. If you have freedom to continue to go to church and you're the believing spouse, you continue to bring your kids to church and you try to set the example and you don't put the gospel tracks in his lunch and whatever. And, and you do your best to try to live by example because uh, I think it's first or second Peter talks about winning him without a word by the conduct of, for example, of, of a believing wife. And so I think there's a lot to be said if, if you can, if this is manageable to continue to live out your faith with a quiet, godly example, 
uh, because the other extreme usually gets responded to with anger, and it, it's usually not productive. Okay, we got um, a little small handful left here. Um, in, in regards to your um, to, to the statistics, um, are the youth leaving the church for intellectual reasons, or do you think the bigger reason is a moral one? Uh, with instant access to the internet, do you think sin uh, the, is the greater cause for walking away from the Christian faith? Well, it, it's hard to answer that because what we have to work with is the answers that people give, right? So we can't see through it to say, ah, oh, they said this, but what they really mean mm. is this. We, we don't know, ultimately. What we do know is that the vast majority of stated reasons have to do with these intellectual reasons. Whether they've just picked them up from others and they're repeating them or not, that's, that's hard to say just from looking at the research. But it, there's, there's no denying that, of course, there is definitely this moral or what people call volitional component, meaning I just don't want to believe this is true because I want to live the way that I want to live. And that absolutely, if you have teenagers, I'm sure that you've seen this either with your own teenagers or with their friends, it's extremely challenging because even if you want to show them that Christianity is true, they just don't want to hear it and they shut it out sometimes. So that goes back to really understanding where does the issue lie. If you keep pushing specific answers to them and that's not really where they are, then it's a lot, it, it's a lot more, more challenging. So that's a matter of continual prayer and, and keeping the relationship with your kids. And the reason I keep saying relationship is that I've talked to so many parents and grandparents who have regrets about this, that their first response to their kids or grandkids saying, I don't believe in God anymore, was one of anger or one of condemnation or really just coming down on them. It ruined the relationship. It blocked further communication. So if you have not experienced that, I just, that's why I keep emphasizing the relationship because over time these things will change and you will be able to have those conversations maybe as they grow. And as, as the examples were given of adults walking away, there's, there's certainly a connection to that. We want to live the way we want to live and even some of the big stories coming out about Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson are connected to moral decisions, at, at least for Joshua Harris going through a divorce. Um, where now he's not identifying as a Christian anymore. Um, but, it, but again, there's something else going on there that's not really an intellectual thing. So I think, you know, if, if you've done your job on the intellectual side, um, we have to chalk up a lot of this to humans. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a tendency to stray and want to do it our way. And oftentimes it's not until we're in the mud pit like the prodigal that we finally come to our senses. And that's some of it, too. Right. I'm a young adult, and I work in a secular and liberal work environment. My coworkers are very set in their ways and loud when talking about them. When's the time or experience when I should interject? I feel like I've been on the surrender side every time when it comes to their conversations. What was the very first part of that, the first line? I'm a young adult, and I work in a secular, liberal work environment. Oh, okay. Well, the, again, all these all these issues are tough, right? It's it's difficult to know how to respond in that kind of environment because I know for uh, people that I've known that they've actually lost their job when it was a boss, for example, that they have brought these kinds of things up with. So context is everything and timing is key, but it goes back to what I said earlier with your own kids, asking questions. 
if you feel like there's never a good opportunity to really interject and put yourself out there in terms of saying, well, here's why I think that there's good reason to believe Christianity is true, ask a lot of questions. So when someone says something that you're like, okay, that, that doesn't really make logical sense or that, that, that doesn't really work from this perspective, ask them the questions and say, you know, can you explain to me more about what you mean by that? Get a lot of clarity around what they're saying and then say, how did you come to that conclusion? I'm interested in, under, interested in understanding how you developed your view. And when you start to hear how they develop their view, then you can ask further questions and then you can have more of a conversation. Rather than feeling like your job is to just interject and st stand right into you know, the middle of it, Think of your job as somebody who can kind of facilitate a conversation, a reasonable conversation, by asking those questions. And it will allow you so much more flexibility to have those conversations. And I think, it, I think if you just say, hey, I'm really curious about, back to what you said earlier about a child, how did you come to that conclusion? What shaped that view? Uh, that gets a conversation going without feeling like it's preachy, like you're preaching down to somebody. You're a bigot. Yeah, and, and well, and that's that's really, if they try to categorize you that way, it, it's, it's to shut you this down. This cancel culture they're talking so, about right now, yeah. you know, you you open your mouth, especially at work, you can yes, you can lose it. Okay, one, and some people we, don't want any conversation, and I think we have to expect that that's the case. I, I encounter lots of that online too, where people just want to attack me and accuse me of being stupid because I'm a Christian or whatever, and. You, some of that you just have to ex expect. It's hardly persecution given what's going on in the rest of the world. I think we can handle it. So, Mike, we're really out of time. So one this more? has got to be the last question. All right. Well, do we have one left? Actually, we have a lot here, but this, this is the last one from the audience. And it's probably the easiest one. Um, what's the strongest argument for defending the Christian faith? Or in other words, what's the best way to defend that Christianity is true? Go. Well, <laughs> it, that's actually not the easiest question because it depends on the context and who you're talking with. So it goes back a little bit to what I said earlier. If you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in God at all and you want to talk about the arguments for the resurrection, historical evidence, a lot of times they're just going to wave their hands off because they don't care. They're, they're not interested in whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead and is God. They don't believe in God. So your conversations need to take place up here and look at the arguments for the existence of God. Now, if you're talking to someone who, for example, is a Muslim, they already believe in God. You're going to be wasting your time if you're like, let's talk about the arguments for the existence of God. So in that case, then you're looking more at, well, how do we know that Jesus is God, and how do we know that the Bible is true and hasn't been corrupted, because that's the claim of Islam. So it really depends on the person that you're talking with in terms of what the strongest argument is. It just depends on where they are and in those three questions I talked about earlier about the evidence for God's existence and the evidence for the resurrection and the reliability of God's word, it depends where they're questioning. And you, you have to find Do you that think level. that it's important to be able to start off with the reliability of scripture because otherwise we can't, we can't refer back to it if they don't believe that this is the word of God? You know, what, why even have this conversation in the first place? If I can't go back to the Bible, you know, isn't, wouldn't you say that that's kind of up there? Well, we have a lot of evidence for God's existence outside of the Bible. That's called general revelation, right? What we can learn from the world around us. So for people who don't believe in the Bible, that's often the best starting place. If you're an atheist and you're not even willing to consider the Bible, then it's best oftentimes to start over there. Also for the resurrection, 
the Bible, of course, gives us a lot to work with, but also looking at historical evidence, there are a lot of historical facts around the resurrection uh, that, that you can learn about. But one thing that that question brings up for me is that a lot of times people do, especially when you're talking about questions of some of the hot topics today, like same-sex marriage, for example, I all, I'm surprised this question didn't come up tonight because it always comes up, what do I say to my kids about you know, what the Bible says about homosexuality? Well, my first question is uh, back to someone is always the same. It's like, well, what does your kid think about the Bible, right? Because if your kid doesn't think that the Bible is God's word, I, I'm sorry, but it's not going to help to continually quote from different parts of the Bible on this issue. This is a worldview issue. This is a matter of where you get your source of authority. Do you get it from God's word or do you get it from self? And so you have to know where your kid is on that path of, you know, if they don't believe in God or if they believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus or they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the Bible, you have to know where they are in order to have these conversations. Because to your point, if you just keep talking about things from the Bible to someone who doesn't believe the Bible, you have to step back first and say, how do we know the Bible's reliable? And assuming that some of those things are in place, let's just say that the person, generally speaking, would accept the Bible and believes that there's a God, my greatest argument is Jesus for the Christian faith. And that's where I always go. If some of those other constructs are in place and that person seems to believe the Bible is the word of God and acknowledges that there is a God, then my, my greatest argument for Christianity is Jesus. And what Jesus said and what he did, his miracles, his resurrection. So I know we've got to We've got to fill in the other parts of the canvas, but my greatest argument is Jesus, and that's where I go, because he's, he's the gospel. He's the one it's all about. And with that, uh, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're here tonight, um, he still saves. He's still alive and well. He is risen from the dead in the very history in which we live, and he is in the saving business and if you've come here tonight and maybe you've been away from Jesus or maybe you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, um, he does save. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead and he said, destroy my body and in three days I will raise it again. And he did it. And there's evidence, great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is the answer. He is God in human flesh who lived among us, who did miracles, who calmed the sea cast out demons, raise the dead, raise himself from the dead, and says that he is the way to salvation. And so that's the, the most powerful argument for Christianity, his Christ. Amen? Amen? And so when we talk about, you know, where all of this leads, it's to a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we would want you to know, because he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And First John tells us, he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the son does not have this life. So this is really a matter of life and death. Someone who receives the biblical Christ moves from death to life, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's what the Bible says about Christian faith. Christian faith is faith in the God who made you, the God who so loved you that he gave his one and only son. And so even though I know we're talking about a lot of big apologetic things, ultimately what it comes down to is who do you say that he is? And uh, this, is, this is the answer that we want to leave you with tonight is always go back. You know, all things being said, right? We got to figure out, ask the right questions, but the message we preach is Jesus, right? And uh, that's where the power is. That's the gospel. 
And if you don't know Christ tonight, or maybe some of these dilemmas that you've uh, encountered have kind of moved you away, just come back home, man. <laughs> You're not going to find life anywhere outside of Jesus. He is the life. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Would everybody give a big thank you to Natasha Crane? Thank you. Thank you, Natasha. She is phenomenal, and you got just a little taste of, um, you know, just some of the knowledge that she has, and that knowledge is in her books that she's passed along to us, and her books are outside. So you got a booth outside or a table where you can buy her books, and um, just just so you know, she does. You do have a square. Uh, so if you could use your cards, there was uh, at our last 633, there was a, he didn't have one, so there, a lot of people were in line and didn't get a book. But she takes credit cards, so go for that. Hey, uh, one more thing before Pastor Mike uh, prays us out. Uh, if you do have uh, young ones upstairs, you're welcome to stay and talk all night if you want, but just make sure you go spring them and uh, let them run around in, in the foyer or out in the parking lot or whatever, and they'll be fine. So, uh, And we do have pie and coffee. There's pie. For those of you who want to stay up till 2 in the morning tonight, yeah. there might be some unleaded stuff out there. So I want you to feel free to stay, enjoy some pie and coffee. If you have additional questions or need prayer, we'll be waiting for you. Make sure you get the books tonight and read them. And also to let you know, this will be on our website probably sometime this coming week. So if you want to share it with somebody or go back and revisit some of the content, it will be up at livingtruthcorona.org. Wait, is it Walk in Truth? Is it? It'll, it'll probably be available at both locations. Okay. Speaking of Walk in Truth, also, if you have a chance, visit the radio uh, table out there if you want to donate to the Walk in Truth radio show as well. So. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, that we have this ability to do this kind of thing tonight. Thank you that the answers are there, and they are satisfying, and they are wonderful, and uh, not everything that we deal with is easy in this life, but thank you that you've given us answers, and thank you that we have a, a faith that's founded in fact. Thank you for Natasha coming out tonight. Would you bless her and her family, her children, uh, her spouse? Would you bless her ministry and this the release of the upcoming book in the spring of next year, I pray, will impact many, many people's lives. Keep Natasha strong and healthy in your service. Thank you for Mike tonight and for all the team that made this possible, for the worship team, for all the servants around here who make these nights possible. Bless each one. Thank you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.